you guys want to know a secret trick about Audacity? We probably should write this down, though, because it's... So the round button, the red one is what records, and the square button is stop. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) These are all facts. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Welcome to the future, everyone! Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. Coming at you with a blast from the past. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. We've got another guest with us today, ladies and gents. He's a man whose article series is not rare, but not common but definitely uncommon. The author of the Uncommoners series, DM Cross. Welcome, DM. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Welcome, friend. <laughs> so listeners may know you from your Uncommoners series, where you write about a whole bunch of uncommon legendary creatures. We're really glad That's to right. have you on. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. I'm, uh, I've actually been kind of like... Half wanting to ask, right? Like, hey, you guys got room? Or half waiting to see if, like, it's in a turn order. So it's my turn, I guess. Yeah, we're definitely, I mean, we've talked about a whole bunch of different types of commanders that we like. But one of those things that we haven't paid a ton of attention to are definitely those uncommon legendary creatures. So we're happy to have you on to talk about all of those. Speak for yourself, Joey. Speak for (laughs) yourself. (laughs) Don't worry. Uh I will sing their praises all, all show long. DM, you and I get along for a reason and and we're gonna extrapolate all those reasons today (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-oh right before we get started did you guys play any fun games or acquire some fun new cards recently um well speaking of of uncommon commanders i i kind of had been threatening to put together an aravad the curse deck and i basically did it on a whim this weekend um because i had most of the legends i wanted to put in the deck so i i threw that together and got to play a couple games with it and was pretty happy with it so far Ervad the Cursed, he's the black-white legendary creature from Dominaria that buffs up all of your other legendary creatures? Gives Is that all right? legends plus two, plus two. And I wanted a deck that was really, really easy, first of all, to play, and secondly, that really had like a power cap for playing. Because there's always like new players that wander through the shop sometimes. And I wound up probably two weeks ago in my, in my LGS, got in a game with two people that were playing, you know, basically pre-cons. Like they had tweaked them, but not very well. And it, it's not a lot of fun to be not casting spells because you want to lose or at least give them a game. So I wanted to have a deck that like I can play against people with low power decks and not risk blowing them out of the water. Not that my decks are that great, but like when you're playing people that are really, really green with really, really, you know, untuned decks, it's tough not to really, really st- stomp them. So I wanted something that was real straight, straight ahead, that was easy for People I'm playing against understand, and this deck seems to have kind of filled that void. Speaking of really, really green, it's funny that you'd build Arvad the Cursed, because you also have a recce history of Kamigawa deck, which draws you cards for legendary creatures, and you were the one of you, Matt, and me, you were the one who 
thought that Jorah Weatherlight Captain would be the most played Dominaria legend, and you even put together a brew about planeswalkers <laughs> and other legendary stuff that she would help you draw cards from. You can't seem to get enough legendary creatures. I did, and I actually, but when I came down <laughs> to building Airvet, I actually was like, do I want to do this with Joyra instead and do red-blue legends? Man, you just can't get enough. But I figured that, that, that would, yeah, I guess I figured that would play too much like Reki, whereas Aravad just buffing, you know, white, black, hate bears, I thought would be a little bit uh, different, so. Alrighty, I've got one fun story before we get started of a game I recently played that this one, this one blew my mind. So, buddy of mine has a Gisela Blade of Gold Knight deck, the one who doubles all damage that your opponents will take but halves all damage that you and permanents you control will take, which is really cool when he plays a card such as Heartless Hidetsugu, which says tap, deal damage to everyone equal to half of their life total. That does a lot of damage when you're the one who controls a Gisela, because it will deal double damage to everyone, i.e. their entire life total, and you'll only take half of half of your life total. Not only that, but while he's playing this, he's actually got a Helm of the Host on his Gisela, so he's made a copy. So he's <laughs> dealing a lot, a lot of damage to people. When he plays the Heartless Hidetsugu, however, he moves his boots that were on the Gisela over to the Heartless Hidetsugu so that it gets haste and can tap to use its ability. But that's when two of my other buddies strike. One of them removes the original Gisela with a reality shift and then the copy of the Gisela with a Pongify. And the other one plays a deflecting palm. What I may have failed to mention is also that the guy who ran the reality shift in Pongify, he had earlier copied Gisela with a Phyrexian Metamorph, which is what necessitated the need for a copy of Gisela in the first place to actually deal double damage. I, a whole bunch of crap happens, but basically what ends up happening is rather than my buddy Gisela player tapping to deal tons of damage and instantly kill everyone else, the only person that he killed was himself by tapping Heartless Hidetsugu. <laughs> Because the new enemy metal Gisela was dealing double damage back to him and a deflecting palm was headed his way as well. It was just from a winning position to a very dead person in a split <laughs> second. And I was very sad to see it happen. I think the only thing that would have been maybe more hilarious if somebody had cast the white-blue fractured identity where you would exile the Gisela and everybody else would get a copy of it. So all of the effects would basically cancel each other out because everybody deals double, but then everybody deals half. And then the one person without a Gisela would basically deal, what, like three times damage or something? That'd be the only way to make that even worse. All of this just, it's too many numbers floating around. That's all I can tell you. Yeah, the math. Too many multipliers? Yeah, the math definitely gets, uh, you, you, you just scoop, you're like, yeah, the math's too hard. Let's play a new game. <laughs> yeah, exa- that's what I would have done. I just, uh, 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 okay, that bye. Was, that, that was one thing I did at one point because I, I have a Vela, the Nightclad deck, and I have sort of the Animist in there, or not sort of the Animist, um, Blade of Selves in there, so I oftentimes like put it on Vela so multiple copies come out and then they all die and leave the battlefield so I get those triggers. And then I also have Rider Replication, so I kicked that, so... I actually at one point in time I went through and figured out what the multipliers all are and, and like made a, made a little table I have with me for convenience sake so I can bring it out and be like okay <laughs> if I kick right a replication on Vela with you know three players out here's what everybody takes that's just ridiculous I really hope people question what what the table's for like that'd be right, hilarious. right exactly like why do you why do you have this exactly <laughs> I did the same thing once upon a time I had a, a Yasan Wanderer Bard deck. And I actually had like a list of what my creatures were at each individual CMC so I could go, you know, I knew what my options were to go get at each at one, at two, at three, whatever. Well, that's 
a, a little bit of a crutch, but I'm no judge. What also saves time when you're from, you know, if you're, if you're like, do I want to go get what's in my deck? That's actually a really good point. When you go searching for your library, you should definitely know what you're searching for. So that's actually, now that I think about it, it's not really a crutch so much as it, that's very noble of you to try and save everyone time. And that, and that was like for the first, you know, month of the deck, like after a while, you know what you, you, you remember it all. But at first I didn't. So I wrote it all down just so it wouldn't be annoying for everybody else when I was trying to figure out what my three drops were. Yeah, I can, I can definitely appreciate somebody doing that for sure. So DM, let's get to know you a little bit. What kind of decks do you usually play? So actually, speaking of Dominaria, I got two new decks from the set. I have the Moldrotha, you know, Soul Tide, Graveyard, Grindy Value that I enjoy quite a bit. And then I also have uh, Joda, the Archmage Eternal, which is my Super Friends deck. I just have five color Planeswalkers, and he's kind of just there to enable the, the, the five colors. And sometimes he helps with the more expensive Planeswalker, like uh, Nicol Bolas, God Pharaohs in there, stuff like that. So he can help, but he also isn't super necessary. Um, the other decks that I have right now are Edgar Markov Tribal Vampires, where I have mostly the smaller vampires and kind of like the aristocratic build that I think is really popular with him. And um, my other favorite deck, which is the one that I've been running the longest, is my Cranko Goblin Tribal, which is it's Goblin Tribal, but it's also kind of tribal infinite combos because I'm a spiky player sometimes. There's, I think, 16 or 17 infinite combos in the deck total. It's my favorite deck because I have to remember the combo pieces and I have to be able to perform them properly. So it's kind of like a test for me to be like, hey, do I remember how to do this every time? And, you know, can I also play against people who typically recognize what I'm doing and try to stop me? So I have to bide my time. I have to play at the right time and everything. So I feel like it's a good test of who I am as a player. So those, those are probably my favorite decks. You don't seem to pull any punches. I, uh, I have a hard time. Uh, and I've had this discussion with a couple of my friends playing down. I have a friend who says in his play group, he sometimes like makes his deck not as competitive. And I can't look at a deck and basically like say, how do I not play this as, as well as I can? It's just a personality quirk of me. Like if I see I can make something better, I, I have to. And I feel weird when I, I don't try to. Uh, how just for my edification again, how many infinite combos did you say were in that Krenko deck? I want to say that it was 15, but I think I oopsed into another one in my last game. So I want to say it's 16. Not all of them win the game, like Basalt Monolith and um, Rings of Bright Hearth. They don't necessarily win me the game in Cranko. They do generate infinite mana. But if I don't have the colored mana, it might not matter. So with the right pieces, it could potentially then win me the game. But, you know, they're, they're not all the time is at the end of the game. And people think that Mono Red is bad in Commander. 16 infinite win conditions. Dear Lord. I, my, my biggest claim to fame with that is at SCGCon this year, I sat at a table where one of the players admitted that he was a competitive EDH player. He was just playing at the tables, and I decided to play my Cranko. Turn four, I won the game with uh, Dual Caster Mage and Twin Flame. Hmm. Gross. You and Patrick Sapola <laughs> from Combo Corner should definitely get to talking here soon, right? <laughs> But I mean, he tapped out. It was turn four. I had enough mana for it because I had to, you know, turn one soul ring. So I was like, ah, I think I'm just going to do the thing. So really, he just that's, gave you permission. That's my favorite yeah. excuse I've heard. That's, that's my favorite <laughs> excuse. He's the, it's his fault that I went infinite. I mean, if, you know, he's a competitive player, he should have been trying to stop me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a spiky crankle player. He, he knew what he was getting into. Well, I, I do kind of get that, though, like, because I mentioned that Aravad deck, the cap on what I can do with an Aravad Legends deck 
is pretty low. Like it's only going to be so strong. So I can kind of tweak that deck a lot and it's still going to be, you know, Airved Legends. Like there's only so much I can do with it, but I'm still allowed to tweak it. I can still tweak it and not have to worry about making it too strong for people. So it kind of has a built-in cap, but I don't have to really, you know, like you said, like build it down because I can build it as strong as yeah. it can be and it's just still going to be what it is. Yeah, certain commanders are certain power levels, you know what I mean? Like Thrasios is always going to be really good because of what he can do right. and what those colors can do. You're never going to get away from that. So then again, if you were to pick up, you know, Krom, he's not going to go off quite as bad. So that makes sense. So it's funny to me to hear that you tend to be a very spiky player when you in your article series, you write about uncommon legendary creatures that we've seen for example a whole bulk of them in dominaria but then also throughout the course of magic's history for example in kamigawa i believe there were a handful as well and then a few that have even been downshifted and such so given the fact that you're such a spiky player i'm curious what inspired the uncommoners series for you i think what mainly inspired it obviously the set was inspired by the dominaria uncommon legendary creatures uh when we started seeing how many people started catching on like hey these legendary creatures are uncommon and then wizards came out and said there will be a, a legendary creature in every pack and the uncommon ones won't take your rare spot they will be your uncommon spot so when i started seeing that i like things that are are different i like things that are splashy and i like making people go oh wait what when i won that game on turn four Two of the other players looked at me and they're like, how did this just happen? And I had to go through and walk through the steps of how the combo works. So stuff like that really kind of like makes me think even more about the legendary creatures. And then seeing all these at Uncommon, it got me thinking. And that's how I actually even found out how many Uncommon creatures are legendary creatures there have been throughout the history of Magic. So because it was something different, something new. It's something we don't see every set. And I, I like stuff like that. Um, so I think I know the answer if I were to ask myself this question, DM, but uh, what's your favorite uncommander, uncommander, well, however you want to say it, what's your favorite that you've brewed so far? So uh, the series is, I think, like seven articles in, seven or eight articles in by now. Uh -huh. And I wanted to actually save one in particular toward the end because it's actually my favorite legendary creature of all of Dominaria, even though I run Moldrotha and Joda. Tatiova, Benthic Druid, the green and blue uh, merfolk legendary is my absolute favorite i love how simplistic it is it rewards you for wanting to do what everybody wants to do in magic which is put lands on the field tatiova says that whenever you put a land into the battlefield that you draw a card and gain a life and in green where you get you know so many options to make so many other land drops you're basically just gonna it's a it's an engine which is kind of like Jora is as well for artifacts. And I think that is my favorite article series that I've written, even though I like, you know, Graveyard stuff and Whisper was really fun for me to write as well. I think Tatiova is my favorite one to have written about and like try to think about like, how is this, how do I, how many different ways can I make this commander? See, there, there was a right answer to that DM and <laughs> that Tatiova is not it. Ah, uh, which one was it? Oh, you know, you know, it's, the best mono red commander ever. It's it's Valdek, of course. He mentions it every episode. But th this I mean, time it makes sense for me to bring it up. <laughs> it does, it does. So the only problem with saying that that's the best mono red one is I just told you the best mono red one. I run it, it's Cranko, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but not an uncommon. <laughs> that's fair. Cranko's too good to be just an uncommon. The best uncommon uh, would probably be Chandler, I would assume. Chandler. <laughs> I did forget about Chandler. 
Ups. Everybody forgets Never about, forget about the legendary creature named Chandler. Fool me, fool me once, Chan, Chandler me twice. <laughs> so do you think these these uncommon commanders are ever overpowered by rare and mythic commanders? I mean, obviously, like, generally speaking, the rare and mythic commanders are strong just by virtue of being rare and mythic, and that tends to be why they put them at those rarities. But the uncommons, like, do you think they are overshadowed, or can they actually compete by and large with some of the the more splashy rares and mythics. So for starters, let's, let's be real. There was 20 uncommon legendary creatures from Dominaria alone. 20 in one set, they're going to probably run out of the super strong ideas because they also have to do rare and mythic ones. So there are uncommon legendary creatures that aren't as strong as the rares and the mythics. However, there are still some that are very strong. Tatiova, I believe, is very strong because she's an engine and she rewards you from just doing something that's natural magic. Whisper, I think, is a really strong one because she goes off infinite with anything that makes two creatures when it enters the battlefield and Thornbite Staff. You get those two and you're basically just and like any kind of blood artist effect or Zulaport Cutthroat effect. And you're basically winning the game right there. That's that's very powerful to have that much synergy. And those cards are so readily available in stuff like Mono Black. However, then there's like uh, Rona, Disciple of Gix is one that I'm not terribly crazy about it's the one where when it enters the battlefield i think you can exile a historical off the top of your library and you can cast exile cards cards that have been exiled with rona i don't think that's a super strong one there are some other ones that are not super strong halar can be strong at times but they can also sometimes be limited because you need the kicker of the spells and kicker spells are not notoriously great and they're also mana intensive because it is an additional cost. Even though I have seen Howler decks go crazy because you put Grafted Exoskeleton on it and kill everybody with infect damage. So it depends. It's, it's on a case-by-case basis, I think. Valduk is also another one that's really strong because he doesn't have to swing. He doesn't have to do anything. He just has to sit there with equipment on him. And he makes all these tokens. And then red with tokens entering the battlefield and you know having those disposable bodies, we all know what you know, mono red can do. Again, I'm a crankle player, so I I would probably build a Valduk package similar to my crankle package and just throw more equipments in. Sounds pretty good. So I I, I think certain ones are more powerful than others, but not all of them are going to be like, hey, I'd rather play this uncommon than a rare and a mythic. Some of them are just not that good. And that's something as well. Like, I think it's kind of human instinct to look at the uncommon symbol, see the silver there, and we just automatically assume like, eh, this probably isn't as great as some of the, you know, the gold symbols or the, the mythic creatures either. But there are instances where some of those rare symbols or, you know, those mythic commanders, we see some of those and they're actually, sometimes they're lackluster in comparison to some of the uncommon creatures that we see. Uh, Slimefoot the Stowaway, for example, a buddy of mine built that one and holy, that thing's insane. That yeah. does, it puts out so many creatures and it, hurts so bad when all of them die and that's a really powerful ability regardless of what the actual color symbol is and i I do really like your series because it reminds us to not really pay attention to that piece of the card so much not to put ascribe like too much value to the fact that something was labeled as being silver that what that means is just like the amount that you'll see it in the pack but it doesn't actually necessarily indicate that this is a significantly worse card in our format some of them are actually really awesome like you mentioned tatiova and some rare commanders are actually kind of eh, you know whatever so like that that symbol is almost neither here nor there and your series focuses in on that and reminds us to you know to, to turn our thoughts around about creatures that have certain symbols or not and 
It really puts them in a nice spotlight. I really appreciate that. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on commanders that, for example, were once rares but have been downshifted recently in certain sets? So, for example, a recent example is a Jalira Master Polymorphist, who was originally a rare but has actually been downshifted, I believe, in Masters 25. Or uh, Zada Hedron Grinder, the same story. That was a mono-red commander that when we first saw it in the Battle for Zendikar block was a rare but then was also downshifted recently to uncommon in another set. Do you have any thoughts about those types of Commanders. I actually think with downshifting, I think it's something that we're going to continue to see as the game continues to evolve. And the reason why I think that is because with new, it, it's kind of an arms race in in Magic and Wizards. They're kind of guilty of causing it because they're always trying to brew and and make more powerful things. So, for instance, everybody's latest. Uh, some people love it. Some people complain about it. But the Eminence Commanders. So now everybody complains that the Eminence Commanders are too good. And then they've made some of the older commanders not good at all. So will we see those other ones downshifted to uncommon or from mythic to rare? Yeah, maybe, because now by today's standard or the standard that cards are being printed at now, if Wizards is using the uncommon and rare and mythic as a power scale, even though we probably shouldn't as brewers, they still might turn around and, you know, shift things down. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see even not legendary creatures, but in certain sets, we can look at, I think it's Mortician Beetle, although I'm probably getting that name wrong. But it was a 1-1 one, one for a single black mana that used to be a rare that says whenever a permanent is sacrificed, I get a plus one counter. And it was a rare when we saw it, and now it's a common. Or Scion of the Wild. When it was released in Ravnica, it was a rare, and now it was downshifted all the way to common. Like Those power levels are constantly shifting, so you make a really good observation there. And there's also even sometimes how they feel it is in a certain set, because instead of uh, talking about downshifting, let's talk about shifting up. Palaka Worm for M19 is now a rare. And Ethan oh, actually right. went on a Twitter thread about it, about like why, because they had just reprinted it in a couple sets back, and now they reprinted it again, and they shifted it up. And everybody, I guess, was asking them, like, hey, why are you doing this? Like, why is this card so good? And it's they, they felt it fit in the rare slot for the set based on how the set plays. So M19, in its bubble, Palaka Worm should be a rare. Well, that's a good thing to point out, too, because like Zada Hedron Grinder... In a set, like a master set where there's not a ton of creatures that can exploit that very specific ability of hers, isn't a particularly good card. So it makes sense that uncommon because it, the, the amount of damage it can do is pretty limited. Whereas in Commander, and I've seen Zada decks win on turn five before. Like it's a really, really strong Commander. Maybe it isn't Krenko, but may, I mean, I think it might be as good as Krenko, if not even better in some decks. So that, like, that's a crazy strong card in commander but like in the master set where you're not running a bunch of one man or terrible red spells that let you draw 14 cards um exactly. that's a whole different deal exactly so i think they have to think about sometimes in a bubble we obviously in this format obviously we don't think about things in a bubble because you know we we have so many sets to play across but for them the set has to be designed for the set even though they do i'm like gavin's even said that like battle bond had commander in mind I'm sure M19, I think, had a little bit of commander in mind. Even though they do kind of think of, like, how do we, you know, maybe throw them a bone, they still have to be able to give that limited play the right feel. So I have a quick trivia question for everyone. Do you know how many uncommon legendary creatures there are in the game? 
Yes, but only because I know because I write the series. So I'm not going to answer. <laughs> That's what I was – I wanted to pick your brain a little bit just to see if you knew because, you know, as the Uncommoners writer, you definitely should. So I'm glad to see that you're on the ball. But Dana, Matt, can you guys guess? Uh, so there was 20-ish, whatever that – I've heard the number that DM said, but I know there's like 20-ish that were in Dominaria. Mm-hmm. There's at least a few in Kamigawa – um, probably roughly the same amount. We mentioned Chandler before, so I know some of those early sets like Homelands had a few, and the Legends had a lot of like the bad gold commanders, <laughs> like the vanilla creatures. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the Legends had a lot. So, man, I bet there's at least 60 to 70. It yeah. might be more than that, but I'm going to get, I, I'll say 70. Matt, what about you? I'm going to agree with Dana on this one. Probably like, I would say 75 on the high end. But yeah, when you think about like all the, the old, old, like Lady Orca type legendaries yeah. and stuff like that, like those probably, Terrible ones. yeah, they probably add up faster than we give it credit for. So I, yeah, I, I would say 75 on the high end and 55 on the low end. Well, DM, do you want to let us know the answer? So it's actually, depending on how you search for it, it can be a little bit of a trick because it can be off by one. And I'll explain why in a second. But the number that I consider the real number is 88. Oh, all right. Ooh. There's 88 total. Interesting. I'm, I'm actually, I'm surprised to hear you say 88, but g- g- go on. But I've, I'm, I have a thing about that. Interesting. So the one off is that there's technically 89, and the reason why is because Shauna had the uh, promo with the Planeswalker watermark on her, and if you go searching for it in a certain way, there's a parameter. I think when I search just the Dominaria ones, it pops up separately, even though it's technically, I mean, it is the exact same card, but for some reason, search engines treat it like it's a different card, so you can throw your numbers off if you don't put that into consideration. Well, you also, there's weird, like, goofy Kamigawa stuff where, like, this thing is a uncommon creature that turns into a legendary enchantment or vice versa. So yep, I, I don't, that's exactly what I don't know what those yep, count that's, as. That's precisely what I was going to bring up. Things like Bushy Tenderfoot or uh, uh, Kalojushi or Budoka Pupil. Those are the cards that start as regular creatures but flip into legendary creatures, but they can't be your commander. DM, are you counting those or no? Yeah, they, if you go searching for just uncommon, legendary, and creature, they do get included in there. But do you count them? <laughs> I guess not, because like you said, they can't be your commander unless your playgroup, I guess, allows it. So if I were to... Adjusting your search parameters? Pretty much. Uh, we lose about 10. So now it's 78 if you take those out. Yeah, there was a two per cycle, I, I think. Two per color in that cycle, I believe. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's definitely... like I When I first looked that up to to ask that question i was shocked to find that there were that many uncommon legendary creatures in my mind there were like the 20 from dominaria or something (laughs) and that was kind of it i knew that there had been occasionally some other ones that were downshifted but i just i really thought that it would be a much lower number than it actually is well if you had asked me to give a give an answer in like one second without thinking it through i would have probably guessed 25 to 30 as well it was only when i paused and like thought about the question was like okay well, there was, you know, the series from Legends and the series from Kamigawa. So, yeah, that was my instinctive guess without spending 10 seconds mulling it over was also probably like 25 or 30. Yeah, it's one of those things where 
it's hard to pay attention to over the course. And it's, it's not something that you really think about a lot because in Commander, we're not so concerned about what rarity our commander is. We're just concerned about, is it a legendary creature and what can I do with it? We're just concerned so you, that like Lady Orca is the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. No, nobody else is endorsing that. That was not a credible source. <laughs> Easy. No, no, no. I am very credible. <laughs> You're on train Autumn Willow, not Lady Orca. That's true. So, so DM, you used to write the mm. Replacement Commander series. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and just what you were covering in that article series. So, Replacement Commanders was what I started calling the alternative commanders in every commander product. So, for Edgar Markov, it was uh, Mathis and then Lucia. Uh, those ones, I always feel every time a set comes out that the deck is really built around the face commander. And that makes sense because that's, that's a representation of the deck. So I noticed, especially with that product last year is that Mathis, he doesn't care about tribal vampires. Lycia doesn't even really care except for the vampires that deal with gaining life. So what I wanted to do was basically build decks that were just about Mathis or just about Lycia or just about Kess or just about uh, Miri, you know, and, and basically let them shine in that like pre conny field to where everything is tailored to them. It was just an eight series article because, of course, there was only eight replacement commanders, but I think I'm actually going to be starting it back up this year. So I'm very excited for the Commander 18 product and uh, all the alternative commanders that are our replacement commanders that are going to be coming out for that. Awesome. Yeah. And it definitely is the type of series that has a, a, a finite point to it since there are a finite number of replacement commanders. But you're totally right. We've discussed in some of our past episodes that a lot of the headliner, like, oh, I'm the front of the box, Atraxa, Ur-Dragon, all of them, they take up a whole lot of the limelight sometimes. And so it's nice to see that you were also keeping your eye out for some of the commanders that occasionally get overlooked. Yeah, and it's even, uh, this is actually a better example than the ones that I had, but the Ur-Dragon one had Okagachi. If you go on to EDHREC.com and look up Ogagachi, he's not built tribal dragons. He's built tribal spirits mostly. So it was, it was, yeah, sure, he's a dragon himself. But outside of that, he didn't care or doesn't matter if he's got dragons with him or not. And the spirit thing actually wound up being pretty strong. We've seen it in a lot of different, you know, content online. And people have rooted a lot. And it's obviously pretty popular based on how his page uh, shows up. So... That was another time where, yeah, he fit into a tribal dragon deck because he was a tribal dragon, but outside of that, he doesn't care. Awesome. So, listeners, you should definitely go take a gander at DM Cross's articles, whether the Replacement Commander series or the Uncommanders, because he's highlighting some really awesome commanders and doing some really unique brews around them that I think are really enlightening. So definitely go take a look at those. Let's move now to our head-to-head -head segment where we each pick two kind of similar cards and have the others guess which one is more popular, either in general or in a specific deck. DM, do you want to get us started off on the head-to-head -head segment? Sure. Uh, I picked two cards, uh, obviously, that were very similar. They're almost identical. So it, hopefully this is going to be kind of hard for you, uh, all three of you. The Utter End, which is a white-black instant. It's two, a white and a black. Instant speed, exile, target, non-land permanent. And then its opposite is Anguish and Making, which is one, a white and a black, instant speed, exile target, non-land permanent, you lose three life. So really the only difference is the one uh, generic mana in the converted mana cost, and then the lose three life. Which one do you think is the more popular one? Expensive or hurts? I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to imagine a situation where you don't run both in a deck, and that situation is when you're wrong. <laughs> so, so those numbers should be exactly the same. 
However, uh, come come on now. One of them's like less than a dollar. The other one's almost six. Yeah, like, right. You know, there yeah, are budgetary reasons true. for sure. All right, all right, that's fine. Um, but yes, they are both solid. <laughs> um, they both have had promos too, I believe. Right? I think Utter End had a. I don't know if it was an F and M or a buy, or buy a box. So did Anguish and Making. So they both have a couple of versions out there. Man, that's a coin flip. I don't know how you differentiate. I've, I've got nothing, Matt. Do you have any ideas or Joey? Anything that would make one stand out above the other? I think that a lot of people are going to get hung up on that extra mana. Um, they're yeah. not going to care about the three life so much. I think. Obviously, anecdotal, but just all my experience listening to other content creators, I think people kind of sing the praises of Anguished Unmaking a little bit more. Just they talk about the speed of it, how Commander's 40 life format, so the three life doesn't really matter. Um, I think that that kind of rubs off on the typical player. So I, I'm going to go with Anguished Unmaking getting a little more love. That's my same logic as well, actually. I. I do think that it's easier to keep up three mana than four. Uh, so I, I'm going to have to lean towards the anguish and making myself. I, uh, so I'm, I'm going to go the other direction and, and here's my logic and it might entirely be flawed. Utter end is been around longer and had more chance to pop up in decks and it, but, but it's not been around so long that people have forgotten about it or don't know it exists. So I'm going to go with utter end. I, I think anguish and making is probably a better card for the reasons Matt mentioned. But I'm going to guess Utter End might be in more decks because people have had, you know, six years to put it in their deck versus Anguish and Making, which has been around two years-ish, I think. So that is my reasoning, and it might entirely be insane. So actually, uh, it's really funny that Dana brings up how long uh, Utter End has been around as compared to Anguish and Making because Anguish and Making is actually in about 2,000 more decks than Utter End. That one mana is actually worth three life especially yeah. i think in black and white decks because you're black and white decks we all know the themes of all the colors right so black and white decks tend to go toward like a life matters or life gain style theory so chances are the three life matters even less in those decks than maybe other colors all right good to know that i was right i love <laughs> hearing that <laughs> matt how about you go next okay well so dm slandered my good buddy Valduk and said Tatiova's <laughs> Tatiova's a little more popular, cooler, whatever you want to say. So I got one that are two of my favorite cards for Commander. Um, they're both, you know, value. A lot of people are probably going to start playing them with the Lands Commander, the Commander 2018 set. So um, in Tatiova decks, limit that to not just all decks, but Tatiova specifically, what deck has more synergy between... Ramanap Excavator and Corsa of Crufix. So Ramanap Excavator is two and a green for two, three Naga Cleric. And it reads, you may play lands uh, from your graveyard. So it's basically Crucible Worlds on a stick versus Corsa of Crufix, which is one in uh, green, green for an enchantment creature or centaur, which is a two, four. Play with the top card of your library revealed. You may play the top card of it of your library if it's a land. And whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, you gain one life. So lands matters. Both kind of play around with playing lands, not from your hand. Which one do you think has more synergy? And I'll even give you the percentage of how much they're played in Tatiova decks too. So Ramanap Excavator is played in 58% of Tatiova decks. And Corsair is played in 60% in Tatiova decks. So they're both played at a very high clip. But which one do you think has more synergy? 
And as a reminder, the synergy rating is the average percentage above which that card shows up in this specific deck, as opposed to other decks that could also run those cards. Correct. So definitely looking more at those particular cards for this specific deck, as opposed to the way that they could show up in other Simic decks. In that regard, I would have to guess the Courser of Crufix. Just that same landfall gaining life ability strikes me as the type of thing that people are really looking to synergize with. And I'm not sure that it shows up in a lot of other Simic builds. I guess I'm not sure that Ramanop Excavator shows up in a whole lot of other Simic builds either. But I feel like that extra life is really forcing people to to jam it in there along with Tatiova's life gain ability too. Um, yeah, I, I think Courser in general probably goes in more decks because it's a little more generic and it also maybe fits in some like Enchantress themed decks. But I think in Tatiova in particular, Excavator generates more landfall triggers, which that deck wants just by, you know, because you can just play that land over and over and over and get essentially a trigger every turn until someone deals with the Excavator or your graveyard. Whereas Courser, you're kind of hoping there's a land on top and you haven't, you know, used up your landfall yet to do that. So I'm going to guess Excavator has more synergy. I want to say Excavator as well, because I, w- I would assume you're going to run a decent amount of fetch lands for the double landfall, right? So Evolving Wilds, tap it, go get, you know, force or an island, get two lands for the price of one. And also, I would imagine that a lot of the Tatiova decks probably run like Titania in them as well. So I think the combination of having the recursion land or the land recursion and landfall stuff that Tatiova is just naturally going to have, I, I want to say the excavator is going to be the higher one. Okay, nice. Well, thankfully, Joey is wrong. Uh, <laughs> so course, I'm unhappy this time. Corsair of Crufix is played at 45% synergy. Whereas Ramon Up Excavator is played at 47% synergy. So, oh, so sneaks close. it out. It was real close. Yes. I, I remember when I first saw Ramon Up Excavator, like, oh, it had me super excited. So I'm glad to see a lot of people are playing it and uh, just, yeah, doing well in the format. Do love that card. I love lands and I love death and I love land death. That's why I was so excited <laughs> for Gitrog Monster. And I'm really excited for the upcoming Lord Windgrace as well. But, but, but we'll talk about those on separate shows for sure. Uh, I'll head up next for my head to head segment. I kind of want to play with time this time. Let's go with time stretch. The 10 mana spell that gives you two extra turns versus Time Warp, the five mana spell that gives you one. Which of those shows up more in EDH? That's a hard one. Uh, I'm going to guess Time Warp. I think it's easier. I I think competitive decks probably run Time Warp more frequently because it's castable before the game is over, whereas Time Stretch... I would guess those guys aren't playing games that last long enough to cast a time stretch very frequently, short from like a Narsa situation. So, you know, I, I, there's no reason I don't think to differentiate between the two for casual players, but I think competitive players probably play time warp more. So I'm going to guess that extra group is maybe enough to put it over the top. Yeah, I think, I think I'm going to agree with that. I think the lower con, uh, converted mana cost is just too hard to ignore. I think time warp is going to be the right answer. Yeah, time warp for sure. I think just being a little bit cheaper. I mean, if you're casting a time stretch, you might as well be casting uh, extra pay, or not extra pay. Yeah, uh, 
the yeah, whatever the one out of Conspiracy Two. Expropriate, is. yes, that one. There we there go. There you go. I have I have one right in front of me, and I couldn't even think of the name. <laughs> so you know, because we all agreed, we're all going to be wrong. That, that's probably true. You too. are actually all correct. Yeah. Time warp. Woo. Time warp shows up in six thousand eight hundred and sixty-two decks total, and time stretch shows up in four thousand five hundred and twenty-eight. So well done, guys. There. And as Dana mentioned, the top commander for both of them is Narset Enlightened Master. Because, hey, free spells and, hey, free extra turns, which means, hey, more free spells. Definitely uh, packs a powerful punch there. Dana, what's your head-to-head? Okay, so I've got two cards that are also very similar in similar colors. Um, and this was also one of those things I tend to do where, like, I generally am curious, which is more popular, so I look it up. So the two cards are Overwhelming Stampede and Overrun. And the main difference is mm-hmm. overrun, creatures you control get plus three, plus three, and gain trample until end of turn for five mana. And overwhelming stampede, which also costs five, but it's only two green versus three for overrun. Um, stampede until the end of turn, creatures you control gain trample and plus X plus X, where X is the greatest power among creatures you control. So there's a higher ceiling on overwhelming stampede, assuming you have bigger creatures, but overrun works better in a deck with weenies. So of those two, which is more frequently played? Windmill Slam on the Stampede. That's one of my best friend's signature spells, and it destroys <laughs> me so many times. So I'm going to have to go with that. Anybody else? It's hard, because I've, I've seen both of these casts for devastating effects, but then again, I married an elf player, so there's that. Um, I think... Overrun is actually going to be more popular because I think the token strategy applies to a lot of people who just get into the format. Like it's it's fun to make those really big, uh, scary board states, and Overrun is just better for the one ones. Like you, like exactly like what you said. How about you, Matt? What's your you're you're, you're the tiebreaker here. I'm going to go with DM just because he's the guest. <laughs> uh-huh. That's that's dangerous. I'm just, never I'm, just I'm just being polite. That's all I'm gonna do today. <laughs> <laughs> He's being polite, and he has an excuse now. It's true. Um, mm. So so my guess before we looked at this is I was actually going to guess Overrun because number one I knew it had more reprinting. So in looking it up, Overrun's been printed 17 times versus just Ooh, wow. just five for Overwhelming Stampede. However, Overwhelming Stampede is in 9,606 decks, and Overrun is only in 5633. So there's almost a 4,000 wow. deck difference in favor of Overwhelming Stampede. Hmm. It's, it's like just a- so good, though. It's so good. I, I would also guess there's probably more decks that have big bodies, and there are decks that are that are relying on small stuff that they need to give plus three, plus three, because they're not going to have anything big enough to buff it with Overwhelming Stampede. So sudden death, what's probably more popular, overwhelming stampede or my personal favorite, triumph of the hordes. Oh, triumph Ooh. of the hordes, thousand percent. That's, that's I'm just saying. It's easier even, to kill people at ten. Triumph of the hordes is in the middle at seven thousand eight fifteen. Ah, ha! Screw you, Matt. I'm still right. <laughs> that's <laughs> well. In, in in looking at my decks, I run one of all three of them. So I have Triumph and Overrun in my Edric deck because it's got weenies, so I can't rely on Overwhelming Stampede. And I have Overwhelming Stampede in my Recce deck where I often have giant bodies. So I run all three, but I don't have any deck that has all three of them in it. 
Yeah, it, they are some powerful, powerful spells, that's for sure. That Beastmaster Ascension, Thunderfoot Bayloth, Craterhoof Behemoth, like those things will just absolutely wreck you if you are not paying close attention. And I know that because I am frequently wrecked by them because I'm not <laughs> paying close attention. I know right. how I commonly die to these cards that I commonly die to. <laughs> Let's move on to another discussion really quick. DM, I know that when you uh, were talking with us about coming on, you wanted to discuss some threat assessment as well and the way that we can evaluate other people's problematic cards on the battlefield. So we just wanted to discuss for a short time the ways that we personally evaluate those threats, the way that we assess problems on the battlefield. How do you personally prioritize your targets when there are so many problems in play? So for me, there's a, a few different factors. There's the obvious um, combo factors. If I see combo pieces out, I don't want them to stick around because I'm worried about what they're going to be able to obviously do. Either you're going to find the other pieces or something like that. And I obviously don't want to just lose the game out of nowhere because I didn't get rid of something when I had the chance. Uh, and then if I think anything can instantly kill me, even if I'm not the threat and it might not happen, it still worries me that it could happen. So if somebody's playing a Voltron deck and I've got commander damage on me already, if they have lightning greaves, but there's also potentially some other problematic artifacts, I might still get rid of the lightning greaves because I don't want them to suddenly cast their commander in some combo-ish way or just to get the land drop that they needed, put lightning greaves on it and hit me out of nowhere. So that's, that's my two big things. I don't want you to combo out on me and I don't want to be dead out of nowhere, which I guess kind of go together. I mean, yeah, that's quite fair. Dana, Matt, how about you guys? How do you try to prioritize the uh, the target problems? Um, when there are several things in play that I try to... First thing that I think people kind of make a mistake on and one of the things I'm always cautious about is just because something is a threat doesn't necessarily mean it's a threat to you. So you always have to like stop yourself and be like, okay, this thing's scary, but, but does it have the ability to hurt me? Because there's plenty of times it doesn't. Just because something's out there, you know, if someone's got a doubling season in play and you see they're going to do some gross doubling season stuff, well, if you're holding a rift or an evacuation or something, maybe you don't care. So normally you'd want to hit that doubling season, but, you know, hold back and let somebody else deal with it. Or or if no one does, who cares? Because you'll just solve the problem in three turns with the cards you have in hand. So I think that's one thing I always have to pause and look around and like, don't instinctively knee-jerk destroy that threat because... Just because it's a threat doesn't mean it's necessarily a threat to you personally. Um, so I, anyway, that's what I'm talking about prioritize. That's one of the things I always check about is when I prioritize targets, it's it's things that I'm worried about personally, not necessarily things that are just generally scary. Yeah, I think that's really wise. I Since I've been playing a group hug deck recently, my Kineos and Tiro deck, I've learned the value of like resisting that knee jerk when someone drops a huge ulamog or some other crazy 100 100 creature that can instantly destroy me it's become very valuable for me to be like ah wait a second he might point it elsewhere or maybe i can even literally goad that creature into being pointed elsewhere there are ways that you can like if other people if you treat them as loose cannon sometimes you can sometimes point that cannon towards your enemies and that can be really helpful but if you're just worried about the fact that they've played a huge threat then you're you might miss the fact that you can like actually use that to your advantage you don't have to necessarily 
like instantly get rid of those things. And that's why I personally like instant speed removal spells so, so much. Whenever, you know, I have the choice between, for example, a Mortify or a Vindicate, even though Vindicate can destroy any permanent, it's at sorcery speed. And I'd much rather have something that can destroy it at instant speed, because then I can respond if it's coming my way specifically. And that's just really, really nice. I like that flexibility. But that tends to be one of the ways that I try and finagle my way around when I see several problems in play. I have to try and evaluate which ones are coming more specifically to me. And Dana, that totally ties into the ones that you were saying there. Just because something's a threat doesn't mean it's necessarily a threat to you. How about you, Matt? Do you have anything particular that you like focus on when it comes to dealing with problem targets that are in play? I think the big thing for me is knowing who you're playing with. Um, know who the people that are, I guess, easily convinced to join your side. I know it sounds like I'm advocating politics, which I would never do, by the way. <laughs> never, ever. But um, know who you're playing with. Just the, the people that are at the table know their decks. And that doesn't mean you have to know every card in their deck because obviously decks are always changing. But um, know their play style. Like, you know, if, listen to what they say when they sit down. If you're playing with strangers like oh yeah, I normally like to do this and sometimes I do this too. So that will give you an inkling on are, am I going to be able to convince them to do some of my dirty work for me? Is this the type of person that they're going to have knee-jerk reactions or are they going to be like, okay, um, I'll answer that when I need to, I guess. So the big thing for me, just threat assessment, is know the decks at the table, know the people at the table. Those are going to be two very, very helpful things for for anyone just to learn how to socialize even. But that's one thing that I kind of encourage people to do and, and try to do myself. Because um, then once you know you get backed up into a corner, you need to make a deal. There's a difference between politicking and making a deal and, and you know, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So That's really good advice, knowing the people at your table. I, like An immediate example that jumps to my mind is a friend of mine, whenever you remove his big threat, his first... You know, his first salvo into the game, whatever big enemy creature he puts into play, the first person to remove it, he's going after that guy for the rest of the game. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, like, and that's a really wise thing to know about threat assessment. Like, you need to evaluate not just the problem, like, oh, he played this big dark steel crusher, huge, gigantic thing that can kill us in one <laughs> blow. But really, that's not the problem. The player's the problem. And if you wrong him, he'll remember that. And so that's really good to know the types of people that you're playing with as well. Maybe some people can be a little more convinced, or maybe some people will have just like one target in mind. And so knowing those, navigating those is also an excellent piece of advice, Matt. Yeah. I mean, and it's never it's never a bad thing to you know do a little extra social socialization uh, with the people that you're sitting around the table with either. I mean, people say Commander is the the social format, so why not you know socialize while you're doing that? <laughs> so, what are some common mistakes that you guys see when people are trying to make threat assessments? What are some of the errors that you think people are making when they're evaluating other threats? When people bolt the bird, that is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. So there's a saying in 60 card <laughs> formats, uh, you always bolt the bird, which, you know, is it's slang for as soon as they play a Birds of Paradise or a Land of War Elves or, you know, any mana dork, what have you, uh, you always kill it right away because that means you're not letting them get ahead of themselves. Uh, they're not letting them get ahead of you. Sometimes people will keep one land and a couple mana dorks. And if they do that, for one, they're they're playing... Not very well. But in Commander, it has a way bigger difference than in 60-card formats where, you know, they 
can play a mana dork, but then the next turn they're going to play, you know, soul ring and a signet or whatever. And you're out a removal spell, you know, you, you play their commander. You could have, you know, saved that swords to plowshares for the commander, but instead you killed their not vine mystic or something silly like that. And yes, I say not vine mystic specifically because <laughs> that creature, I have played it and instantly has been killed so many times. <laughs> Well, so, I, yes. I, I think the, I would I would actually ext- I know what you're saying, Matt, and I would maybe extend it out to just saying, forgetting that you are not in modern or not in legacy or not in standard. I think people just generally sometimes try to apply thinking from those formats to Commander, and that is a definitely a square peg in a round hole kind of situation where, like you said, bolting the bird makes total sense in modern, and it doesn't in Commander. And when it comes to threat assessment, I think that's a very common one when you're dealing with people who play other other formats where they apply threat from those formats to Commander. With that said, though, like the philosophy behind the bolt the bird scenario is that you need to cut off their resources, which prevent them from playing their haymakers. And there, while Birds of Paradise is maybe a smaller example here in this much larger and crazier format, there are certain cards that I think are kind of analogous on a much larger scale. Zooming out kind of, I guess one of the examples that comes to my mind is Zendikar Resurgent or Mirari's Wake. Those provide such a mana leap, such an additional, just a huge boon of extra resources that sometimes those are the things that you need to take care of. Sometimes, I mean, on a completely different tack, the Ristic Study is the thing that you need to take care of because that's what's providing them with so many additional resources and so much additional value that will eventually become more insurmountable than any huge beater that they can put out in front of them. Well, you also have the extra threat with things like Ristic Study that you don't have in other formats where that third and fourth player playing poorly affects what you have to do. Like there are situations where I've, you know, been facing Ristic Study and thought, okay, I can deal with that in two turns or I can deal with it down the road or I don't maybe care at all because I'm going to kill this player in two turns until the guy next to you just is like, yeah, I'm not paying one. Just go ahead and draw. Go ahead and draw. Go ahead and draw. Like then you get situations where you have to alter your threat assessment because that third factor that you don't deal with elsewhere changes the entire game by, you know, and maybe it's not just them playing badly. Maybe they play in a card that's a greater threat. So that's a that's something that you really have to consider. This is a 3D game, whereas it's maybe 2D. You know, you're, you're just dealing with the person across the table from you when you're playing standard or something. When you're playing commander, you've got multiple X and Y and Z factors to deal with that you don't elsewhere. Dan, what are some mistakes that you think people make when trying to assess threats? So I think I think actually the big one that I was going to say, which originally came from your story, Joe, and then a little bit of what Dan is talking about is tunnel visioning. Is that Somebody does play the Ristic Study and they get too locked onto that. And then if another big threat, like let's say Marara's Wake comes out and you don't know how to switch and possibly like change your tactics. Some people get so locked in on what they're doing or what they want gone that they don't stop and look because from that person's turn, three other people have gone and played and altered the variables of now the board state. So you have to you have to be more fluid and you have to be able to adjust at all times, which can be difficult, but I think it's really necessary. But yeah, that tunneling in can can actually mess people up. I really like that. And sort of related to it, a, a recent example for me, this is a slight jump, but still still related. A buddy of mine played a Hushwing Griff while I was playing Marin of Clan Neltoth, which totally shut my deck down. It was just 
no fun at all for me because all of my Eternal Witness and Fleshbag Marauder effects that I would pull out of the graveyard and have these awesome one-time effects. Hushman Griff was just like, nah, you ain't going to do any of that stuff. And I had run out of my removal spells, maybe because of some poor threat assessment earlier in the game. Uh, um, but my mission immediately became, I have to get rid of the Hushwing Griff. And what I had failed to realize was that that wasn't just keeping me down. It was also keeping down the rune player on the other side of the battlefield. And that was something that I, like, by the time I did get the chance to get rid of the Hushwing Griff, well, it was actually locking down Mr. Rune over there. And then he'd been preparing a bunch of blink spells. So then he got all of his enter the battlefield abilities before I could get any of mine. And that threat assessment was also kind of a weak piece on my part as well, because I needed to be a little bit more worried about the rune than I needed to be worried about the Hushwing Griff. You open the floodgates. Well, in changing... Yeah, frankly, exactly. In changing focus isn't something, again, that you deal with in other formats. Like when you're playing, on, when yeah. you're playing Matt, you know, modern, your, your threat assessment is the dude across the table from you. And sure, the individual cards he plays may change in terms of what's scariest, but he's always the threat. And if you tunnel vision on killing that person, well, that's exactly what you have to do. Like that's, there's no way to screw that up. Whereas in commander, if you tunnel vision on a person across the table from you and f don't pay attention to like, like DM said with the changing board states, that is a huge problem, and it's it's not something that ever comes up in any other format. Yeah. There's also, when we talk about changing board state, I just want to throw this out there. It's also when things are removed. So when big threats are removed, you don't want to just go, oh, okay, now everything's fine. You do have to remember that there are other threats. They may be your, your number two or your number three threats, but now those variables have, have all bumped up. So now your number two is your number one, your number three is your number two. So the the board is not suddenly clear just because one thing got rid of and that's a changing board state as well and a reevaluation of what's going on what i would also say yeah. the the board state is beyond just the board state like just because someone cast a decree of pain and wiped the board doesn't mean everyone is suddenly on equal footing because the person who cast a decree of pain might have just drawn 14 cards and I, that's something yes. i sometimes see people miss too where like they're just thinking in terms of what's actually on the board and not thinking in terms of what that person's holding in their hand or what, you know, those kind of variables that absolutely make a difference. Yeah, I used to run a, uh, a Cothofed deck and his ability was every time somebody else loses a permanent, you draw a card and you lose a life. And we had a, a player who was a known token player. Like, that's what he liked to do. He just liked to make tokens. He liked to have a million creatures. And people would board wipe them because they'd be scary. And then they wouldn't notice that, like, yeah, my life total went down, but I have, like, 20 cards in my hand and I have my two combo pieces. So... I'm just waiting for my turn to win the game. And it, it happened more than once. That's actually a really good point to, to bring up as well. And this is something that we kind of discussed on the Combo Corner episode with Patrick Zipola, where it can occasionally be difficult to assess who's the actual threat at the table because they're holding, like, they're playing the game in their hand more than they're playing it on the battlefield. And when it's not presented right there in front of you, it can be easy to miss, hey, wait, that Thrasios player over there has been being very low-key he's been really steady just accruing a couple of things but like on the next turn he could bust out of nowhere with some huge game ending thing like completely out of nowhere because he's been playing the game patiently and all of the stuff that he's been strategizing has been in his hand and so that's another thing to kind of keep in mind for threat assessment as well is that it's not always going to be obvious on the battlefield who's the most important threat to you here's another kind of a curveball of a question for you guys does your threat assessment change whenever you're the biggest threat at the table? Yes. Because you have to think about who the biggest threat is to you 
And then can you, I, I hate, I hesitate to say the word manipulate because that sounds really bad, but how do you manipulate the other players to keeping your position? And it's also a matter of, do you know you're the biggest start at the table? And does everybody else know you're the biggest start at the table? Because again, in that one game with Call of Fed, I had my combo pieces in short of instant speed removal or a counter and people having the mana open in the first place to even do any of those. I had the game one, but nobody else knew that. And all I had to do was to, to basically not let anything crazy go on. Like I, I, nobody could wheel or really that was it or leave mana up. So I knew I was the biggest threat. I knew what I wanted to do, but they may not have. That's a good point. Is politics something that you like using a whole lot when trying to deal this whole threat assessment business? I like to try, but because I'm a spiky player, people tend to just <laughs> want me out of the game because they're like, oh, no, no, no. He's just he's just buying his time until he can win the game out of nowhere, which. OK, yeah, you're right. But why you got to you know play like that, man? <laughs> yeah, You don't have to make it obvious. And call me out. Right. Like, I'm just trying to win the game here. Just just. Why can't we just let that happen? It's a good time for everybody. <laughs> Matt, Dana, what do you guys think? Do, does your threat assessment ever change when you become the the head honcho at the table? I kind of look at it as who who you know, given the board state, given you know what I know about all the players, who can knock me down the quickest or or the easiest, or just keep me from staying up top? And I just try to assess that. And, and, and part of it is kind of knowing you know what colors are out. Uh, paying attention to, you know, do they have two blue open? Do they have, uh, you know, something that, you know, they played earlier that I know they're going to recur in a little bit. Um, just making sure you pay attention and, and just knowing, you know, there's there's no such thing as too much information. Well, you know, and I'm just as guilty as anybody, probably more even if, you, if you've ever played a game with me, but I have a tendency to maybe gloat a little bit and then just stop paying attention uh, when I get in that position. So, Stay focused, I guess, is one big thing, too. Just don't kind of rest on your laurels. Um, if you're trying to win, make sure you're you're still playing to win is the, the big thing for me. I have the tendency to gloat and then not pay attention also describes your habits in podcasts, Matt. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that was that was savage. And I like that. Thanks very much. I'm kind of on board with Matt talking about paying attention to what the potential people have is. That's, that's what I start looking for. Like when I get ahead... My focus on threats starts switching to not what's on the board or what's going to happen, but what's going to happen next turn or what could potentially happen. So like when I'm in a situation where, okay, next turn I can kill one person, but I can't kill all three people, and then I'm going to kill the blue person because that blue or, or that Azorius person because that person may have a Supreme Verdict and that person definitely has a Psychonic Rift in their deck, whereas the person playing you know green – uh, red or something, okay, they might have a blasphemous act, but they probably don't have a ton of board wipes in there like the you know the Osorius player probably does. So then I start doing that kind of math. Like, okay, who's the person that I should strategically remove based on what their deck could potentially do to me? I really like that advice. It's a lot like the Yison thing that you mentioned earlier in the show where knowing your deck and then what Matt mentioned, knowing the other players and really knowing their deck too that's excellent advice. and really the, like honestly though the easiest one to do and the first one i look is is who's playing blue because rift <laughs> rift just screws you like it's unless you're holding maybe teferi's protection rift is just if you don't have a counter spell in hand rift just knocks you back on your butt there's just no way to deal with it so that's the first thing i look for if there's somebody i can take out right now i'm taking out the blue player because they have the largest chance to set me back and then I'll deal with everybody else later on. That's the first question I ask is who could rift me. 
You hear that, blue players? Watch your back when Dana's in town. Alrighty, that's really cool discussion, and I've definitely learned a lot from my own evaluation of threats. But let's move now to our last segment, challenging the stats. This is where we're going to take a look at some cards that we think are seeing either too much play, according to EDHREC, or they're seeing too little play, according to EDHREC. DM, as our guest of honor, how about you get us started off for challenging the stats? So I was actually really looking forward to this segment, because as soon as you told me about it and how it worked, I was like, oh, I have the perfect card, because there's a card I run in almost all my green decks, and people are always like, why do you run that? It's better to run another card that I'm going to compare it to. And it always surprises them in the game how much it disrupts them. Manglehorn. Now, Manglehorn is a relatively new card. It's only it's only been in since a Monkhead. It is two and a green. It's a 2-2 beast. And when it enters the battlefield, you can destroy target artifact. So three mana, small creature, destroys an artifact. Most people compare it to Reclamation Sage, which can also hit enchantments. So people are automatically like, oh, Reclamation Sage is better. Why would you not want the dual targets? But the other part of Manglehorn is artifacts your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped. I cannot tell you how many times somebody has been trying to go off with some kind of either dropping mana rocks or dropping artifact creatures thinking that they're going to be clever and have a big field with like their mere battle sphere or something like that. And it enters the battlefield tapped, especially because I play a lot of Magic Online, and people think it glitched out on them. And I'm like, nope, that was me. It's the card that you're <laughs> laughing at. And it's only really in about 2,100 decks, give or take, I think, uh, 2,087. Whereas Reclamation Sage, which admittedly has been out around for a very long time, is in 26,700 decks. Ooh, that's so, quite a lot. Yeah. That's so huge disparity, but I think Manglehorn has the potential to become more popular because of the disruption. It has the enter the battlefield effect, but then it has a lasting effect until you deal with it. Yeah, and, and frequently, the kind of stuff that you want to take out isn't always enchantments. I mean, there are the Mirari's Wakes of the world, but I, heck, like destroying a soul ring and then preventing all future soul rings from being able to tap for mana immediately, that, that does sound pretty darn powerful. It gives you that breath, that like, here I'm going to do, oh, I got to wait till next turn to do that thing. That's right. That yeah, make your little play two -two. fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Matt, what's your pick for challenges stats? So I was thinking about some popular equipment that a lot of people will play. You know, we always think of Soot Boots, uh, Lightning Greaves, all those kind of fun things. And one that I know has started to pick up a little bit, but I just want to call people's attention to it again, uh, is Trailblazer's Boots. It's only played in 3,880 decks currently, um, but it's an equipment for two and an equip cost of two. Uh, and it just reads, equipped creature has non-basic land walk. And in a format like Commander, there's a lot of non-basic lands running around. Uh, yeah, buddy. So basically, your creature is unblockable. And it's equipment, so you can move it around from creature to creature. Uh, if you want to beat them with commander damage, you have my blessing. Go ahead and do it. But uh, yeah, so just Trailblazer's Boots. And I think we've talked about it a couple times in passing, but I just wanted to drive down the point that if you really want some evasion built into your deck, um, Trailblazer's Boots is a great way to do it because unless they're playing you know, a monocolor deck. And a lot of times even they're still going to play some non-basic lands. They're going to play like a, a rogues passage or what have you. Trailblazer's Boots almost unconditionally just says equipped creatures unblockable. That's, I'm so happy that you picked this one because I just picked this up for my brand new Virtus and Gorm deck. And yeah, it's always been 
my Virtus is unblockable now whenever I attach it to him. And this is probably something that I should have mentioned actually when we were talking about threat assessment. Frequently with that deck, what I'm realizing is that because Virtus can knock someone's life total in half, I immediately look like the threat, even though the deck is not actually super powerful. But <laughs> that equipment definitely helps push me to the end of the game. I mean, I'll cut someone down from 40 to 19 and then down to like 9 or something. And that that looks really good. But then they'll put stuff in my way and then I can't do anything because there's stuff in my way. And while Gorm helps take some care of some blockers, he doesn't take care of all of them. And so having something like the Trailblazers, that, that's so, so useful to make sure that I can actually continue to pressure my opponent's life totals. That's an excellent pick, Matt. I'm really happy that you mentioned that one. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's move on to my pick, and that's going to be the card Dispatch. This is a one white mana instant for a weird little text tap target creature, except that's not actually what it ever does when you're playing it right. What Dispatch actually does is better path to exile, better swords to plowshares. If you've got Metalcraft, instead of tapping target creature, you exile that creature. And I do not think that this card is seeing enough play in specifically in a Sharoom deck or in a Brea deck. I'm just absolutely astonished that it doesn't show up more there. Right now in Brea Ethereum Shaper, the card Swords to Plowshares, the really famous removal spell, is at 35% popularity, but Dispatch is only at 24% popularity. And I'll tell you what, that Metalcraft is so easy to get, especially if you're playing Brea because she makes two additional artifacts. If you ever don't have Metalcraft in a Brea deck, you've already lost the game. Sharoom the Hegemon is another excellent one as well. And it's only seeing up, like, it's only in 20% of Sharoom decks. And I just, I don't understand that. In these particular artifact centric decks, this is a much better removal spell than either Path or Swords because you're always going to have the Metalcraft. So it's a budget pick and it's totally on theme. I definitely think that more than just 20% of people need to be playing it in Sharoom and more than 24% of people need to be playing it in Brea because it's an excellent removal spell. I agree. I'm on board it's, with that. It's, it's, it's pretty sweet. <laughs> it's really question. great when we all agree with each other. What's that, DM? What's the price difference in Dispatch to Path? Because Path is so popular, I imagine copies get bought up a lot, whereas Dispatch probably, they just sit around, right, if only 20% of people are playing them. Exactly. Dispatch currently has a pretty equivalent price to Swords to Plowshares at about a dollar-ish, but Path to Exile is nearly nine. So if you're running an artifact deck and you need a really efficient piece of removal and you don't want to spend ten bucks on a Path to Exile, yeah, Dispatch will, like, that's an excellent, excellent thing to use. It's so efficient to exile any creature. It's exile, it's not even destroy. Like, you can get rid of indestructible stuff. So, so efficient. I can't recommend it enough, and it definitely belongs in those decks. Lastly, Dana, what's your challenge to stats? My challenge to stats um, is a card, a land card from Kamigawa that I just closed the window for because I keep doing that. So give me one second. Uh, <laughs> you're, you should be so much better at this. You're on another podcast and you can't <laughs> no even. Kid, no kidding. Man. He, he uses up all of his, uh, his juju on that Apparently. one. Apparently. All right. My card is Hall of the Bandit Lord from Kamigawa. Um, for those who don't know, it's a legendary land that comes into play tapped, which isn't great. But you can tap it to pay three life and add one colorless to your mana pool. And if that mana is spent on a creature spell, that creature has haste. So that doesn't sound great in a vacuum. But what's great about it is it's colorless. So you can run that in any deck to grant haste to your creatures, particularly your commander, in colors that don't have access to that. So... The card I was mainly looking at here is the most popular commander on EDH Rec, which is Atraxa. 
in colors without access to haze because there's no red or at least very limited access without using equipment or maybe concordant crossroads or something. But what makes it really strange to me that it's only in, I believe, 17 Atraxodex. 17 Atraxodex, and that's it. And why it's especially odd there is Atraxa has lifelink. So that three mana you're going to lose when you cast Atraxa with Hall the Bandit Lord, you're going to immediately gain four life for the most part off Atraxa swinging in because she has lifelink. And she has vigilance, so you don't even lose her as a blocker. So by using Hall the Bandit Lord on Atraxa, you're not doing anything. Your, your board state isn't getting any worse than it was before, and you're getting a free hit in, and you're probably actually going to wind up ahead one life even though you lost three to cast it. And then it's available for any future haste creatures you want to you know, cast after Atraxa. But I just feel like if your commander doesn't have access to haste, and especially if you have lifelink, but even if you don't, but especially if you do, that probably should be in your deck. And it should be in way more than 17 Atraxa decks. So here's the problem. Hall of the Bandit Lord does only produce colorless. Yes. Mana, so you do have to, like, this has to be your second or third, et cetera, time yep. casting Atraxa, which isn't really sexy for the card. Right, but you probably have other creatures that you want to give haste there too as well. And you also have the advantage, you're playing Atraxa color, so you have Urborg, so you have the option to maybe be using it just as a swap. So, you'd like, it isn't limiting you to just colorless mana, particularly in Atraxa. I just think that the upside is way higher than seven decks. You're also playing a four-color commander, so it, you wouldn't be surprised to see like a chromatic lantern, sure, as well. So th- there's also mana fixing that way as well. But I mean, even beyond a track, yeah. you have things like Brian Brian Stardarm, where you know you want to give Brian haste to fling something right away, and it's in twenty-one Brian decks or Dramoka Dragonlord Dramoka, which has lifelink as well, and it's in like twenty-one Dramoka decks. So. There's just so many commanders, even beyond Atraxa, that can really take advantage of that haste and then recoup the life loss if that's what your concern is, and they're still just not running it for the most part. Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, two more that just jumped to my mind, like the having the lifelink especially, that's a really good point that you bring up. Uh, Bruce Tarl, Borish Herder, that sounds like a great place to put it because then he enters, gives some, gives probably himself lifelink, but then he attacks and gives something else lifelink and double strike as well. That seems really powerful. Or uh, Lysia, Sanguine Tribune, she's got the first strike lifelink and you can pay life to make her even more powerful. All of those definitely seem like some pretty good places to put it because that life loss is just totally negligible. So yeah, I think that's a really good pick. I mean, I wouldn't put it in every deck and I'm only running it in one of my decks, but but it should be just generally in more decks than it is in so yeah we did talk earlier that three life is yeah in commander not that much to really have to pay for especially when you're you're getting something as good as a haste commander out of it i i think three mana that's worth three mana i mean three life yeah and hey your new uncommon arvad the cursed he's also got lifelink so maybe well that, that, that's actually that's too. actually what started me thinking about how the bandit lord because i was like oh i can run it in arvad and oh i get the life back from my commander having lifelink okay that's an easy thing to do so that's what got me thinking about that in particular with lifelink commanders yeah those uncommon commanders man they're pretty powerful dm what just kind of curious one last question what's the next uncommander article that you're writing so that's actually kind of the fun part. I don't actually know. And the reason oh. why is because every time we do an article, there's only one rule that I stick to, and that's I switch between a Dominaria one and an old school one. But what I do is I go to the Discord server that I run with my friends, and I get four options, whether it's Dominaria commanders or 
old school ones. And then I make that into a Twitter poll and run that for like three days and let people vote on what I'll write about. And, you know, I want to cover I'm going to cover all the Dominaria ones. So it doesn't matter what order I really do them in. And then for the old school ones, I'm only doing 20 total because, again, not all of them are super great. So it, it doesn't really matter to me because I'm always going to try to put a crazy spin on it or something like that. So it, it's fun to get other people involved and let them kind of fit, maybe find like an old school commander or a new one that they have like their heart set on. They want to see crazy things happen with it and give them the chance to like voice that opinion in the articles. That's awesome. So speaking of Twitter polls, if our listeners wanted to go and vote on your next uncommander article, where can they find you? Uh, Twitter.com slash DM underscore cross C-R-O-S-S. Very straightforward. But I think you've also got a couple of other social media coordinates, such as a YouTube channel, and you also stream every so often, too. So do you want to tell the listeners about that, another place that they can go check out your content? Sure. Um, like I said, I have a team where we do videos for YouTube. That's YouTube.com slash Praetor Magic. Praetor's like from, you know, the old school Shieldred and Jim Kachaktis, Vorin Klex and all those. Um, it's also Twitch.tv slash Praetor Magic. So simple, easy. Awesome. Thank you so much, DM, for joining us. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with Dana and Matt, guys, where can they find you? You can find huh? me on uh, – oh, Matt, go ahead. You can go first. What? I wasn't paying attention, apparently. <laughs> you pulled a Marcel and fell asleep? I was so far ahead, and I just no, he got, stopped paying he attention. He got arrogant and then stopped paying right, attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyways, no, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. Shoot us an email, edhretcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you guys there as well. And this is Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. And you can listen to me once a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can follow EDHREC and the EDHREC cast on Facebook and Twitter. We're doing a giveaway when EDHREC gets 5,000 likes and when EDHREC cast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter. So head on over there to smash those like buttons for a chance at a cool prize. You can also find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. How dare you say I would be pedantic about it? I would be shallow, but never pedantic. Why not both? Shallow and pedantic. Quite. Hmm, hmm, hmm. DM with the Porque No Los Dos philosophies over here. I like it. (laughs) 